and welcome to the Hearsay Sidebar, a podcast where the Hearsay team gets together around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. The Hearsay Sidebar is a podcast by Lext Australia, a legal innovation company that makes the law easier to access and easier to practice. Whether or not to raise the age of criminal responsibility has been a recurring theme in legal circles throughout 2023. As it stands in Australia, the common law presumes that children under the age of 10 lack the capacity to be criminally responsible. And this concept is encapsulated in the Latin phrase dolly incapax, one you'll be hearing a fair bit today. Throughout Australia, between the ages of 10 and 14, there is a rebuttable presumption of incapacity. Now, it's rebuttable in the sense that where there is weight of evidence in favour of the conclusion that the accused child knew the relevant conduct was morally wrong, then the presumption of dolly incapax, the presumption of a absence of criminal responsibility, may be rebutted. Now, given the importance, relevance and complexity of the issue of childhood criminal responsibility, we thought we'd ask a regular expert on the show for his thoughts on Dolly Incapax and the campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility. Our guest today, podcast favourite, Andrew Teat. Oh, favourite. Well, favorite. Take yeah. that. that's just fine with me. You can carry on. You're one of my favourites, oh, certainly, well. Andrew. <laughs> Director and Principal at Jay Sutton and & Associates and a New South Wales accredited specialist in criminal law. Andrew, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here again. Always a pleasure. How many times is it now? Three, four? Oh, a couple, a couple. But, you know, it's fun. I love coming down here and chatting to you guys. It's always a treat. Now, normally I start with, you know, tell us about your background, but we've all heard it before. So what's been happening with you? Criminal law is an always exciting, always interesting area of law to practice in. There's always something new and exciting and interesting going on. There's also always the usual trouble and trauma and stress and people going through pretty bad times in your office. But it's something I would not trade for anything. It's always a fascinating area to work in. Yeah, but just before we started recording, you were saying time of recording, it's nearly Christmas. It is. You're counting down the work days you have left. This is the 12th last work day for the year for me. And I can tell you of those 12 days, there's more than one or two that are earmarked for Christmas celebrations. So there's a few days where there's sort of up to lunch planned and then we will see where the day takes us. Yeah, the Christmas party days don't really count, do they? Are they? Well, depends. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see how we go. Depends if you got caught in the morning, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. Now we're talking dolly incapax. Sure. Very neat Latin phrase. We gave a little bit of a pricey on it in the intro there, but in case we weren't listening or in case I've not done it justice, dolly incapax, what is it? Sure. So dolly incapax is a Latin term. It means literally incapable of evil. Now, Australian lawyers don't use Latin in our practice very much. There are some countries I've read about where, in fact, you need to take a course in Latin to actually practice in the area. Um, we don't use a lot of Latin, you know, mens rea, actus reus, ab initio, whatever. I don't speak Latin. But it is one of those terms that does still have a great deal of use in the criminal law. Meaning incapable of evil, it's speaking about what is the minimum age of criminal responsibility. In other words, where is the border or where is the arbitrary point where we decide a child is old enough or mature enough to be dealt with under the criminal law. And it has its roots in common law, as we said, judge-made law. Sure. Indeed. So in most states in Australia, we still, generally speaking, rely on the common law presumption about dolly and capax. So how it works in most states in Australia is when a child is under 10 years old, they are, by law, incapable of committing a criminal offence. So whilst they might, as a matter of fact, have done a thing that would otherwise be a criminal offence against the law, the law says that that child is incapable of criminal offending. So an eight-year-old who does a robbery or steals some money or damages some property, whilst they've literally done the thing, the law says, well, that's not a criminal offence because they're too young, being under 10 years old. Now, the way it works as you get older gets quite interesting. Above 14, dolly incapax doesn't apply and children can commit criminal offences. 
Between 10 and 14 is a sort of gray area, and that's where the rebuttable presumption that you mentioned comes in. So what the law says is when a child is 10, 11, 12, or 13, they are presumed to not be capable of committing a criminal offense. However, it is, as you say, a rebuttable presumption. And what that means is the government can, notwithstanding that this child was, say, 12 years old, seek to demonstrate that they understood that what they did was morally wrong or seriously wrong. And if they can reach that bar, if they can prove that factor, then in the law's eyes, that child is capable of committing a criminal offence and able to be dealt with under the criminal law. Now, before we move on to talk about some of the proposals for raising the age of criminal responsibility. I think when we talk about this topic, there is a tendency, especially maybe in circles outside of legal practitioners, to think of sensational, closely followed by media cases, especially in the UK and the US, about very serious offences committed by young offenders or children. In your experience as a criminal law practitioner, what's the kind of daily impact of Dolly Incapax? What sort of offences are the 10, 11, 12 and 13-year-olds that you see in your practice being charged with? What are the kinds of considerations that go into determining whether or not they have criminal responsibility or not? Sure. So as you say, there are some very high-profile occasions where children have committed very serious criminal offending. But the vast majority of persons under the age of 18 who come into contact with criminal law are committing more what you might call antisocial criminal offending. So there's some very helpful stats that have been published by various government bodies. And if you look at the numbers for children charged or dealt with for criminal offending, there's a lot of property offences. So robbery, shoplifting, breaking and entering. What you might look at as children being a bit out of control are children who are, whether it's because of their social circumstances or their socioeconomic circumstances, whatever it might be, but children who are acting out in a variety of ways. There's lots of assaults, that kind of thing. There's very few examples of very serious criminal offending. Whilst, as we all know, there are a few tragic examples of children committing murders and committing sexual assaults, those matters are in the vast minority of children committing criminal offences, both in Australia and around the world more generally. Where the rubber hits the road for a lot of children is then when these offences are alleged to have occurred, how they're dealt with by police. Because all police have the discretion, generally speaking, whether to charge a person or a child or to divert them towards various other programs or facilities or systems to assist in dealing with the issue, whatever it might be. And when it comes to dealing with these children, the question about whether they're likely to be criminally punished plays a big part, I think, in the decision whether to lay charges and go down that criminal law path. And I suppose that diversionary approach, the other tools that are available either to a police officer who's dealing with the situation or to social workers, to the state more generally, it's probably something that's worth touching on because it's not as though you know, a nine-year-old can go on a crime spree and nothing at all happens as a consequence. No, absolutely. There's a real importance when it comes to dealing with children in particular for police to be smart about how they do it. In many cases, you can just charge someone. You can put them in front of the court. If the child is 10 through 14, the law allows a police officer to do that. But a smart officer, and in fairness, I should say, many, if not most officers in New South Wales take this approach about looking at who or what they're dealing with and trying to be smart about how they do it. And in many cases, what's really needed is the child to be taken home and placed back in the custody of their parents or the child to be taken away from the area where things are happening or the child to be diverted, as you say, towards some form of social assistance to get them off drugs or get them into a safe place or to get them away from whatever 
major negative influence there might be in their lives. So there's a great need for police to have a wide vision or a broad vision as to what they're doing in dealing with these young children. So the edge of criminal responsibility is really not so much about whether or not there is a consequence to criminal offending in children, but what tools are available at which ages to respond to it. That's exactly right. And again, just because police can charge and prosecute someone doesn't mean they should. And in fairness, I should say, just because they can doesn't mean that they do. Because, I mean, for a police officer, charging and prosecuting someone is a lot of time and a lot of effort. And most peace officers, in my experience, will use some common sense and use that broader picture in deciding, well, you know what, maybe prosecuting this 11-year-old for this shoplifting isn't the right choice. Maybe taking them home and chatting to their parents Mm. is a better way forward. Now, as we said at the top of the episode, this has been a hot topic in 2023. There was some criticism a few years ago from the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child of our especially low age of criminal responsibility or low minimum age of criminal responsibility, I suppose I should say. Are there any cases that have been handed down over the last year that have kind of contributed to this discussion about Dolly and Capac? I don't think one particular case that's driven it, but it's been an ongoing theme. It's been a point raised repeatedly by a lot of advocates and especially lawyers working in the children's law area where they've argued that the idea of imprisoning a 10-year-old is crazy. Mm. And how can we as a civilized society think that a child who's 10 or 11 or even 12 or 13 is best dealt with by putting them in jail? So the two key cases that always come to my mind um, are a high court case from 2016 called RP v. The Queen. And that case set out the four major considerations for the court to consider when deciding whether that rebuttable presumption has in fact been rebutted. And what the High Court said a judge or a magistrate or a jury needs to look at are these four issues. Number one, that the prosecution must rebut the presumption as an element of the prosecution case. In other words, this isn't something that is a defense that needs to be raised, but rather that is something the prosecution needs to rebut for any child who's 10, 11, 12 or 13 before they can move further. The proof that's required is that the child appreciated the moral wrongness of the alleged offence as opposed to being merely naughty. So children who are five or eight or nine understand naughty and understand right or wrong, generally speaking, but it's very different for a child to understand that moral wrongness or to understand the conduct is seriously wrong. The the difference between I know it's against the rules and I know there's something intrinsically wrong about it. Yeah, that's exactly right. The third matter that Michael referred to was that the evidence needs to prove that beyond all doubt and contradiction. So it can't simply be a suggestion that perhaps maybe the child got it, but the prosecution really has a high bar to satisfy to show that this 10, 11, 12 or 13-year-old child understands the wrongness of the offence. And finally, the mere fact of the offence itself cannot in and of itself rebut the presumption. So some children do awful things without having any appreciation whatsoever of just how wrong and awful those things are. So the mere fact that a child has done something that any right-thinking adults would find morally reprehensible is not in and of itself enough. And that case really sets the framework mm. for how we look at Dolly Inkpacks in the Australian community today, in Australian law. There was a very interesting case that came up early this year, and that's the case of ABVR, so AB being the child's name versus R, Rex or Regina, as it was perhaps at the relevant time. You'll notice those names both have pseudonyms or initials rather than the full name, and that's because we don't publish children's names, I should say, when it comes to criminal offending. Now, that's a very interesting case for a number of reasons, unconnected to Dolly and Capax, but Dolly was one of the issues there because if memory serves, the child in question was 11 and a half when they allegedly committed a very serious sexual offence against another child. And as I said, there are 
a number of fairly broad legal issues that were raised in that case. But what was interesting about it is the Crown prosecutor in that case put forward 10 reasons why he or she argued that Dolly Incapax had been rebutted. It is a matter for the jury to decide, and the jury had to assess whether the Crown had rebutted Dolly Incapax for that child. And reasons 9 and 10 were interesting because what the accused was alleged to have said to the alleged victim was, don't tell anyone, you'll get me in trouble. Now, that's Mm. a very childlike term to use, but the case put forward by the Crown was that by the accused using those words towards the alleged victim, don't tell anyone, you'll get me in trouble, that demonstrated, so went the argument, that child really did appreciate that what they had done, allegedly, was very wrong. And the 10th argument, as it was alleged against the accused, was that he was said to have quickly thought up a fake story, to told a lie, to cover what he was meant to have done. Again, the willingness of that child to tell a lie, to tell an untruth, was said to demonstrate that they understood the moral wrongness. Now, of course, all of this goes in the mix and a matter for the jury to decide. But that's a really helpful example, I think, about how these matters are presented to juries and the sort of thing that the Crown will put forward attempting to rebut that presumption. Not being a criminal lawyer, it surprises me that's a matter for the jury. Yes. I suppose that makes sense. It's fundamentally about whether the mens rea Mm. is kind of present for the offence, but it surprises me. And I suppose it's confounding as well because it makes it difficult to determine in one case or the other why the jury's arrived at a particular verdict. Welcome to the jury system. The jury doesn't have to give reasons. (laughs) No reasons at all. So juries give verdicts every day when you sit there and go, okay, that's what they've decided. And sometimes, you know, I'd give every dollar I have to be inside that jury room and to hear the arguments and to be able to plumb the depths of those jurors' mind to understand why they've reached certain conclusions. I mean, for better or for worse, we ask juries to assess all manner of complex, difficult things. I read a case earlier this week about a jury being asked to decide whether a person was responsible for the criminal offending based upon some serious mental health conditions they had. So psychologists were called and gave evidence and were cross-examined, and jurors were asked to absorb and assess some really complex and difficult psychological information with a view to assessing whether that person was guilty or not guilty. We ask a lot of juries, these days especially, as trials get more and more complicated and more and more complex, jurors are asked to make very, very difficult and complicated decisions based upon very difficult and complex evidence. But that's the jury system for you, for better or for worse. For better or for worse. Two things jumped out at me from those elements. One was the last element, and I think that makes a lot of sense. You can imagine, you know, we just said that typically the sorts of matters where you're invoking this principle are not the sensational, heinous, serious, indictable offences. But in those matters, you can see how the temptation might be there to say, well, how could anyone not find this morally The point being, well, any adult would. But of course, these aren't adults, are they? Indeed. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that really jumped out at me was that third element, beyond all doubt and contradiction. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that phrase before. Is that different to beyond a reasonable doubt? That's a good question. I'm not precisely sure. Certainly, the prosecution need to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. I think what it's shooting towards is that It can't simply be, well, it's more likely than not they get it. It is a very high bar that needs to be reached in order to be satisfied that Dolly has been rebutted by the evidence. It is a curious turn of phrase. Now, we're talking about raising the age of criminal responsibility in this country. Raising it to what? I suppose there must be other jurisdictions around the world that have tackled this question, that have come up with models, practices that are either working or not. 
What are the proposals around this issue? So there's a lot. There's a lot of proposals. Many people want the age raised by a variety of numbers. The most common argument is that we should do away with Dolly income tax entirely to the extent that we have this rebuttable presumption and simply raise the number from 10 to 14 and say that anyone under the age of 14 cannot, under any circumstances ever, commit a criminal offence at law. When people say hashtag raise the age, that's typically what they're talking about. Around the world, there's an enormous range of different positions that have been taken. In some jurisdictions, it's as high as 18. In others, it's as low as 7, would you believe? So there's a very broad range of approaches being taken around the world. And you know, I suppose every country thinks they're right, and every mm. country thinks they have the right balance. And if you spoke to every country, they'd have their own reasons for that. But as a starting point, as I said at the top, the common law is 10 is the absolute minimum, and then up to 14 if you can rebut the presumption. There's two changes that have been made quite recently around Australia. Now, these matters are state by state. There are Commonwealth laws as well, but each state or territory has their own rules around dolly income tax. As I said, the starting point is 10 as a hard minimum and 14 if rebutted. But just this year, there have been two territories, in fact, not states at all, that have made some changes. So the Northern Territory has announced that they're raising the absolute minimum from 10 to 12. And what that means is now not just up to nine, but 10 and 11-year-olds cannot, under any circumstances, commit criminal offences. In the ACT, they're doing something slightly different. They're raising it to 12 immediately, and then raising it to 14 in 2025. Hmm. But what they're doing that's interesting is they're excluding certain very serious offences from those rules. So what that will mean is in 2025, you won't be able to prosecute a 13-year-old in the ACT for shoplifting or for vandalism. But if they do commit a really serious criminal offence, and there's a list of offences including murder and a few other very serious offences, then there's an exception, as it were, to that raised minimum that's a very different way of going about it. Mm. It's certainly, in many people's eyes, better than what it was. Does it go far enough? Well, that's the argument we're having, I suppose. Absolutely. That is an interesting one. I suppose that addresses the visceral complaint that opponents to raising the age of criminal responsibility sure. might have, which is, what about these sensational, heinous, morally reprehensible offences, but adequately addresses the kind of rubber-hits-the-road reality of daily practice. Sure. But the hard thing is there's a lot of communities in Australia with really a troubled social fabric in the sense that there are, to use a cliche, children running amok in mm. those communities. And if I lived in one of those communities and there are 12 and 13-year-olds breaking into my house mm. and defacing my property and stealing my modem or whatever else, I'd feel slightly aggrieved if the police were to say to me, oh, well, they're 13, we can't do anything, you're out of luck. So yeah. there is a real tension there. And I don't think anyone can say either side's completely right or completely wrong. It's about trying to find solutions that enable society to function as best as possible. Yeah. Well, as we were saying at the top of the episode, this is really not about whether there are consequences to antisocial behaviour. It's about what are those consequences, what tools sure. are available to the state and families to respond to that behaviour. Sure. But I imagine one reason why we've been talking about the age of criminal responsibility this year has been some of the media reporting about regional cities, sure. Queensland especially, mm. where there is some really you know, pretty serious and rampant youth offending. Yeah, exactly. And as I say, if I lived in those communities, I'd probably be thinking, you know, well, there should be some real consequences. And it's good and well to say, well, please can't divert them to this or divert them to that. But there are many children where something firmer than that is required. And mm. 
even if we aren't necessarily looking at sending a child to jail, being able to force, compel them into programs with that threat, often that's the only way to get someone to engage in what's going on. In the same way that some of my clients, they keep committing small offenses until they hit that suspended jail sentence. And someone says, if you do this again, you will go to jail. Mm. And that kind of sharpens their mind to what's going on. Some children and adults for that matter, seem to not get the message until they get the message. And so goes the argument. Many people would say that you need to have, even if you don't necessarily use it, you need to have that threat of imprisonment or really serious criminal penalty to get through to children and to youths generally and help them to understand that this behavior can't and won't be tolerated. Mm. So these are some of the complex issues that people are wrestling with and arguing about as we try to decide, well, what do we do with the hypothetical 12-year-old who's done this awful offense? I suppose I can really see why it's such a volatile topic because on the one hand, we have these communities in regional Queensland that are really struggling with mm. youth offending and probably want more of a law and order, mm, sure, harder approach to that offending. At the same time, the idea of imprisoning a 10-year-old is morally reprehensible. Absolutely. To, to all of us, I, I mean, should hope. I think the hard thing is that the argument is that, you know, well, putting a child in jail doesn't help them which is true, almost never does putting someone in jail help them. Jail, by and large, doesn't help people. There are cases where it gets them off the street and gets them help and gets them treatment and gets them off the drugs or off the alcohol or away from the gang. That certainly can be the case. Mm. But in the vast majority of cases, no matter how old you are, it's putting it specific deterrence, general deterrence, and community protection. Exactly. Putting someone in jail doesn't help them. And I hear this from clients a lot. Well, if they send me to jail, my wife loses the house or my kids are parentless. It doesn't necessarily help that person. What it does do is send that message and make it clear to the community that there are consequences for conduct. Now, putting a 12-year-old in jail doesn't help them. And it's probably going to make their problems worse. Some would say, yes, but that's the only way that the other 99 12-year-olds out there will get the message that you can't do these things. Mm. Now, does that message get out? Is it effective? Is it the right way to communicate it? All valid questions. But I don't think anyone can argue that putting this hypothetical 12-year-old in jail is going to help them. But that's not necessarily why we're doing it. Mm. And that's what many people, I think, lose sight of, that it isn't, tragic though it is, to affect this child's life. It isn't just about that child. It's about the victim. It's about the community. It's about their 99 friends out there who will see the consequences. And as you say, these are the really difficult issues that everyone's wrestling with. Absolutely. Well, we're nearly out of time. Before you go, what movement are we likely to see on this question in 2024? Well, we've seen some already. We've seen those changes made in the Northern Territory and the ACT. Well, whether states start to follow remains to be seen. These are sensitive political issues, and politicians are always anxious about being seen as being soft on crime. So it is very difficult to get the age raised. I don't know whether there's going to be much change moving forward. Certainly, one can't doubt the enthusiasm and the integrity and the vigor with which the argument is being made. And there's no doubt that many people will continue to make this argument. Whether politicians can be brought along is something we'll need to assess as we go. Andrew Tate, thanks so much for joining us. And your pleasure.
You've been listening to the Hearsay Sidebar. Sidebar is our fun, free podcast about legal news. But if you're an Australian lawyer, you can sign up to the original Hearsay the Legal podcast at htlp.com.au. That's htlp.com.au to get all 10 of your CPD points by listening to entertaining interviews with lawyers, judges and other leading figures in the law on demand, on the go and at an unbeatable price. That was HTLP for Hearsay the Legal podcast. Hearsay Sidebar is produced by Ross Davis with help from Jacob Malby. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform because it helps other law geeks just like you find us. Thanks for listening.